Geopolitics and Empire is joined by Mary Harrington, who's a columnist and editor for Unheard and runs her own weekly Substack Reactionary Feminist. Her very first book is Feminism Against Progress. Uh, I've got an early copy here, but it'll be out at the end of the month. Get it. And welcome to Geopolitics and Empire, Mary. Thank you for having me. Thanks for coming on. I've been following your work uh, for a while. And uh, just a disclaimer, the, uh, the subject that you touch on is a slightly outside of my comfort zone and expertise, but I think it's important to reach it. And, and I hope you'll help me out uh, and help us out in understanding what's what's going on. And I think you provide an extremely level-headed and reasonable take uh, on the subject matter. Uh, my personal position, you know, I'm, I'm a conservative and I, I happily and firmly hold to, by and large, traditional values. And I... I, I I see a lot of what's happening, you know, this radical uh, feminism as as destructive and as a weapon being used by, as you touch on, the the technocracy, the marketplace, what I call the globalists, the technocratic empire to sort of remake mankind and better control us. And I thought we could start with that, you know, where you say, quote, what we call feminism today should be called bio-libertarianism, the doctrine that legitimizes the vision of men and women as meat Lego, taking on pseudo-religious overtones and legitimizes us as a raw as raw resources for commodification, uh, end quote. So maybe if you could tell us a bit about this bio-libertarianism or cyborg theocracy. So, so perhaps the central argument of feminism against progress is that on contra to what most, actually most conservatives think um, the sexual revolution was not the beginning of feminism but the end of it um, and I've traced in the first third of the book the history of feminism proper as I see it which was women's aggregate response to the industrial revolution and the way that transformed domestic and family life in ways which significantly impacted women's economic standing and women men and women's political relationship to one another and also intimate relationships at the level of at the at the individual level of individual families. It was an absolutely world-shattering change. You know, it wasn't just that people went to work in factories. It was also that work left the home, which had tremendous ramifications for how family life worked. And so I've traced some of those changes in the first third of the book. And I've I've attempted to show how the two poles of women's response to that transformation was on the one hand to try and make the case for care absent the dimension of economic activity, which had hitherto been a huge part of what women contributed to a productive household, um, and, and which was now as which was now stripped of that economic component and, and was in the form of the of the productive housewife who I'm I'm sorry, the, the bourgeois housewife who who really was the kind of chief consumer in a private household, rather than being an equal economic participant in a productive household. So so there were there were a lot of women who set out to make the case that this still mattered and there were there were aspects of human civilizational importance to what to what they were doing there. You know, the, the moral education of children, the creation of a safe space from the market, you know, all of those other you know, gen gentling and beautifying um, things that the so-called cult of domesticity made the case for during the 19th century. It's a huge body of writing, which if you take the if you take the liberal feminist gobbles off, reads straightforwardly as a kind of feminism. And then there was the other side of the coin from the feminism of care, which was the feminism of freedom. And these were women who said, well, no, hang on, this doesn't, this only works under certain circumstances. And actually, you know, we're still living under a, we're living under an economic order 
where we we're not allowed to own property. You know, we if our husband is tyrannical, if, if our husband is tyrannical or abusive, we can't leave him without leaving our kids behind. You know, there's a whole load of things which are just not working for us. And a lot of these were legacies again from from a time when when the 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 central economic unit, the the central political unit, was a productive household rather than a, the sovereign individual as it is now. And with the entry into market society, all of the all of the legacy economic, the political and economic. Uh, structures from the previous era, which which remained as hangovers within family life, uh, left women significantly disadvantaged, and and f- and the feminism of freedom, which is to say li- the liberal feminism that that has continued on past the sexual revolution, really set out to try and love to to grant women agency as sovereign individuals within market society on the same terms as men. Now that obviously comes with some structural problems um, for women because by by virtue of our reproductive role, it's just not possible to be a Rousseauian autonomous subject in the same way, at least at least once you have kids, as I discovered in my personal life, and I've described this in the book, it just doesn't make sense at all, you know, because you aren't quite one person and you aren't quite two people either in that state of mergedness as a mother goes on for really quite a long time. And so being an autonomous subject in the way in the way that has been elevated by what I what I think of as market liberalism just doesn't make sense for women in the same terms in in the same way as it does for men. And that's and yet if those are the terms that we valorize, we're it, it, effectively, we end up with a movement for women's emancipation, which has an enormous blind spot that's pretty much woman shaped. And and anyway, this 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 didn't really come to a head, as I've argued, until the 1960s, at which point a technology came along, which allowed us fairly reliably to avoid being mothers. And at that point, I've, I've argued that the this back and forth, which had been fairly realistic about the question of women's reproductive role between those women who who defended the domain of care. Of our interdependence and our reproductive and w- women as mothers and the the realm of the domestic and the realm of care, the realm outside the marketplace, really, and those those women who defended women's right to enter the marketplace on the same terms as men, as the feminism of freedom, um, that 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 back and forth which had gone on really from from Mary Wollstonecraft and the the early industrialization of England through to through to the mid twentieth century was was settled definitively in favour of freedom over care by the arrival of birth control relatively reliable birth control the pill really and and inevitably after that the arrival of legal abortion which stated um, and and the and the fact that this was framed as a feminist matter but only this is particularly striking in american case law and in the american discourse surrounding the legalization of abortion and there are there were there were the female judges and activists, and you, you see this. You see this actually very, very, very noticeably more recently. But even even in the early case law surrounding abortion, the the talk is all of women women being able to women be able to take up full personhood effectively on on condition that they can liberate themselves from unintended obligations to a dependent other. And really, it's it's difficult to imagine another more dependent than one who actually resides in your entrails and can't continue to exist unless unless you 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 provide that hospitality and it's it's very hard to think of a, of another which is more dependent than that and it's very hard to think of a more stro- a stronger statement in favor of freedom over care than to say my freedom matters so much that I'm willing to end this dependent life in order to safeguard that freedom so really this was the definitive victory of the feminism of freedom over the feminism of care and since then what what we understand as feminism has really just been that one pole. And the feminism of care has sort of struggled on with various kind of subcultural maternal feminisms. 
but it, but if effectively since then what we've been living under is an is an order which calls itself feminist but is more accurately understood as as a new era really the transhumanist era or what i've called in the book the cyborg era where which valorizes freedom above all else um and 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 specifically freedom underwritten by tech and that and and in a way which began with women's bodies and began with the flattening of the of sex differences between the bodies of men and the bodies of women um with the with the ex- express intent of liberating women to be market participants on the same terms as men but which has subsequently extended into a much more extensive and much more thoroughgoing commodification of human bodies full stop and a much more thoroughgoing project to liberate all of us from the con- the confines or if you like the constraints or or limitations of our bodies full stop you know and w- which is to put it another way morphing into full blown transhumanism and and I and so I make the case that we we can trace a, a direct line from the from the the campaigns the 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 sexual revolutions introduction of the birth control pill as really the first transhumanist technology that was was framed as women's as the emancipation of women by flat by upgrading our physiology in line with our desires um well I, I trace a direct line from that to the gender ideology that we see today and argue that if you're if you're going to say that it's fine to emancipate women by fiddling with our endocrine systems in in the name of freedom then it's very difficult to argue against emancipating a whole a whole other a whole other subsets of people by fiddling with their endocrine systems in in line with their desires and if you you know if it's really a question it's a difference of degree rather than a difference of kind so that's and, and I've traced a few other directions that this this transhumanist turn has taken us really this biolibertarian turn the 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 basic belief system that says our bodies are are limitlessly subject liable to our remodeling or our, our re restructuring or, or reshaping to suit our desires you know f- further into the realms of the the war it wages on the relationship between mothers and their baby or really parents and their children you know but i mean most most noticeably and poignantly on the relationships between mothers and their babies in in the the efflorescence of big fertility technologies from in, in vitro fertilization through to commercial surrogacy which has which, which has all emerged downstream of the contraceptive pill and the the, the new biolibertarian paradigm in medicine and 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 elsewhere into the, the the proliferation of pornography the proliferation of prostitution and a whole a whole raft of other commodifications of the body and increasingly since the digital revolution of also of, also of the human soul um, in conjunction with that, as an as an and as an accelerant to that, and and the the legal and political order, which which legitimizes and celebrates this biolibertarianism, is what I've what I've called cyborg theocracy, and this is this is the order that I think I see us increasingly living under across the anglophone world, and unfortunately increasingly outside it too. A quick shout out to our sponsors, which you can locate via the sponsor page on geopoliticsandempire.com or whose links are included in every podcast description. I've tried privacy phones in the past, such as Silent Circle's Black Phone, which turned out to be a dud. The best and really only option so far is de-googling your phone. Now, you can do it yourself, but I've never had the time to figure that out and simply got an above phone. They sell degoogled phones that come with a suite of software. They also provide support and a monthly above privacy suite with many features such as a unique phone number, encryption, email, VPN, and so forth. If you're looking for a private phone, check out above phone. Make sure to click on the above phone link on geopoliticsandempire.com or via the podcast description so that we can enjoy a commission. Also, check out the Nomos Time Bank at nomos.net. 
which you can download in Spanish or English to your Apple or Google or de-Googled phone. Nomos allows people in your community to exchange services using time as a currency rather than fiat money. This will be one great way to survive in the coming algorithm ghetto. If you need health insurance, you can talk to my friend James Guzman of the Borderless Blog Podcast and Health Insurance. He offers free consultations. Simply schedule a time with him over at borderlesshealthinsurance.com. Finally, you can donate directly to Geopolitics and Empire consult with me, the host, or become a member to join private monthly member Zoom calls where we shoot the breeze discussing world events. I mean, there's, there's so much here. And like I said, I was blown away by your book. I uh, highly recommend it. Even though I get the free copy, I, I'm, I'm going to uh, buy it as well. And I hope people do. And I, I very much share your your view, your analysis, your conclusions, uh, myself being a, a father, a parent uh, as well. And, you know, it's funny today because you talk about us coming into the digital age and, you know, Facebook and, and Tinder and all these things coming about, uh, allowing us to be commodified. This morning, I saw a poster uh, on the on social media, a poster on the streets of Spain. It was a, t a Tinder poster promoting family, and it showed uh, a photo of a couple. Uh, I guess it implies that they're not married and their dog. So that's family today, you know, not being married uh, and having a dog, not having uh, children. And just that further thought on what you were uh, discussing, uh, I love the, the 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 terms that you coined, you know, meet Lego Gnosticism is one of your chapters and basically how um, they want to get rid of, you know, using technology to serve corporate interests, basically, is what you're talking about, deregulating uh, of human nature, uh, enslaving our minds in digital fantasies. Um, and you know, monetizing our bodies via, via biotech, cyborg fem feminism. You talk about this howling dystopia, um, and it's, it's it's interesting what you just mentioned about the Western world because I've lived in Mongolia, in Kazakhstan, uh, in Croatia, now here in Mexico, and all those places. Uh, the women want men to be men and, and, and women to be women. They want men to be strong and to be leaders. Uh, they want the men to make sacrifices uh, for the women and for the families. And to respect, you know, the, the women and the children. And it's, it's interesting in the global south or third world or, or uh, developing nations, they have this traditional view. But in the West, we're in this cyborg, uh, cyborg theocracy. You know, further thoughts there? Yeah, I, I have. I've, I've tried to make it clear in the book that my my critique doesn't doesn't aspire to be a universal one. I think it's very important. Um, it, it's been a very important failing in feminism to date to it's a, a significant blind spot in historically throughout feminism or really th or throughout critiques of this kind has been universalizing the wealthy white western worldview and assuming that's just the case everywhere um and although although you see a lot of lip service paid to intersectionality among the kind of people who i i, I guess i'm critiquing in the book um i still you you, you you still see you still see the UN and um, the U US foreign policy oriented directly towards rolling out American style moral hegemony pretty much on a global basis. I mean, I think everybody's seen that famous video of the of the educators trying to teach um, veiled Afghan women about Marcel, Marcel Duchamp's toilet installation and the looks on their faces in as much as you can see their faces and you just think what what, what in fact is going on here. Um, I, I think it's I, I think it's a mistake to assume that the same the same conditions, the same cultural or material conditions prevail 
worldwide. And given that my my contention is that feminism is an effect of material conditions, material and cultural conditions, rather than being a, a evidence of universal progress as such, I'm extremely loath to assume that what, what will constitute women's interests or really a, a priority at all in one location is necessarily going to be the same anywhere else. Um, on that basis, I'm, I'm extremely cautious. I would be I would be cautious about saying that my my analysis would be relevant, for example, in I, I don't know in Mexico or Honduras or somewhere like that, where where condition, local conditions on the ground might might just see see another set of conditions as being very much more pressing, and and women's women's inter- the defence of women's interests as being being perhaps something very much more pragmatic and immediate than than grumbling about uh, the, the the effect of social media and the birth control pill. However. Um, it's it's not possible to write a book about everything. You sort of have to be a little bit picky. And so I've I've just said explicitly I'm writing the book from you know from fr- from my from my standpoint and acknowledging my blind spots and specifically addressing the history and the and current situation of bourgeois white, uh, bro- broadly white and developed world Westerners and the situation that we find ourselves in now, which is which is downstream of all, all of the other iterations that 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 this 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 quite sort of tunnel visioned worldview has taken itself through. Um, but but that that said, the internet is everywhere now, um, and so there. I mean, it's it's not. I, I I wouldn't feel qualified to predict how how that's going to interact with local conditions on the ground in 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 a very different in a very different culture and economy to the one to the one I exist in in, in small town England. But but it, but it, you can be pretty certain that it will in some respect, and and memes memes propagate themselves with astonishing speed now, and I think it's a fairly safe bet. That in some form or another, the entire world is going to be if if, if where where that isn't already happening, the whole world will soon be grappling with trying to make sense of um, this this the cyborg theocracy, which is now pretty pretty dominant in the United States. Because when America catches a cold, when America sneezes, the rest of the world catches a cold. This is just how it works. Yeah, America remains the the imperial hegemon, and what and the the cultural norms which begin at that imperial center are going to roll out to the periphery. And that happens very quickly now because the internet is what it is. Yeah. And, and I would say, I mean, you're on the cutting edge this, this new book that's coming out and analyzing this. And just from my observations living in Kazakhstan and here in Mexico, this stuff, it's, it's starting to get out there, as you said, through the internet. Um, you know, I, I've mentioned before there, uh, there was a story at one of the schools I used to work at, uh, Nazarbayev intellectual school. They've got 20 of them around the country. Uh, there were students wanting to change their genders and the, the 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 like i mentioned the society the teachers the adults are all very traditional and conservative and one of the teachers strictly admonished the you know the boy who wanted to be a girl or the girl who wanted to bo- be a boy they were dressing um in, in in you know using the other gender's clothes that that kid ended up committing suicide and wh- where did they get that idea again from the cyborg theocracy coming from hollywood and, and, and as you said us empire it's coming here uh to mexico um as well and, you know, I've had past guests like Jim Jatras, retired diplomat. He refers to this as rainbow fascism because it's become part of U.S. foreign policy. Uh, you know, to, to, you know, they want Ukraine now to legalize, um, a lot of this LGBT stuff. I've seen you, you, you the State Department was fine, sending $20,000 to Ecuador to run, uh, transgender, you know, drag queen story hour there. So, uh, I mean, th- that's just fascinating. And it's not that, not to downplay, as you mentioned, you know, here in Mexico, there are very legitimate uh, concerns when it comes to things like what they call machismo, right? This uh, men treating w- women uh, poorly uh, and that sort of thing. And so, um, you know, what else is uh, interesting, uh, important for you to get across uh, here? 
I would be really interested to hear your sense of local responses to what what you've what your 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 previous guest though so colorfully characterized as rainbow fascism what what what's the vibe on the ground outside outside the the imperial capital i mean certainly the <laughs> yeah in in the 51st state the 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 response to the to that rollout from america is ambivalent i suppose you could say but i i'd be i'd be really curious to hear what it's like from where you're sitting i i would gather that it's kind of bifurcated where with the working class Mexicans, I mean, I, I mostly hang out with Mexicans. I'm a, I've become a Mexican national. Uh, and so th the average Mexican still holds to traditional values, but the Mexicans, they're more, let's say, middle class, upper class, they go through the institutions, uh, you know, the universities here, because this stuff has already pretty much permeated education here in Mexico, uh, uh, especially in academia. And so the Mexicans who go through that process, they're they're accepting it now so it's kind of like it's 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 almost like a virus that's that's coming in and, and seeping through the netflix and you know many mexicans here they you see amazon the the streets are littered, littered with amazon boxes they all shop at costco they consume netflix and so that that's how it's all coming in so you you do see it uh winning slowly hearts and minds that's that's <laughs> how i see it I mean, one of the one of the threads that I've attempted to tease out in the book, which I find endlessly fascinating, and I don't really I don't really know how to predict where this is going to go. And again, it would be fascinating to hear your your take on on how how this looks in Mexico as opposed to where I am. Um, is a question which I don't think it's answered enough, which is why why is it so often women who are who are the strongest advocates for this program? The, the the program effectively of abolishing biological sex. Now, of course, this is a slightly different picture in Britain to the United States, where opposition to gender ideology in particular has come mostly from the right. Where, but in, in Britain, it's been a very much more mixed picture politically. And there's been a lot of left-wing feminist resistance to gender ideology, which has come out of a, a, a much more robust history of trade union organisation, combined with, I suppose, a, a more... A more, a more tight knit and well networked community of radical feminists plus the messaging board Mumsnet, and that cocktail of things um, produced it, it, it catalyzed in into a, a much a much more a much more prescient and much more much more well developed early response to the on the onset of gender ideology, such that there has actually been a measure. You know, I say this in a very qualified way: a measure of success in pushing back against some of these legislative moves. Um, a lot of which seem very much more well advanced in the United States. Um, so, I mean, <laughs> rainy fascist island we get called, or turf island, um, because the 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 gender critical movement is, is is so much more so much more well networked and um, and rabid over here. But um, it remains true that you know out, outside that that resistance, um, far far and away the the vast majority i mean i mean it's 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 mums who are taking their toddlers to drag me story hours right and and most of the most of the people who are rolling out these hr uh, directives and most of the people who are who are operate who 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 staff these ngos and most of the people who create these policies and propagate them worldwide are women so what what in fact is going on there why why is this happening and and the conclusion i've come to is that the it's a pretty dark conclusion is that in fact um the reason this is happening is because not for not for knowledge class professional women which is to say the laptop class um of of which i guess i'm a class traitor 
um it's for for women for women of that of that of that kind it remains broadly in our interests professionally to 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 hand wave on the the abolition of biological sex because if you don't if you if you let people start talking about the fact that there are differences between men and women um physiologically below the neck as it were then somebody might start talking about there being differences between men and women above the neck and if and if that happens then somebody might start wondering whether whether that's going to have an effect on my performance at work and when that happens i might i might not get the promotion that i want so broadly speaking, from a professional point, whether or not it's it's really reasoned out in that way, you know, you can you can understand why people would be very committed to the idea that it makes no difference whatsoever what sex you are. You know, your your behaviour, your attitudes, your opinions, your your propensity to violence, none of these things will be affected in any meaningful way whatsoever by your by your sex because it's 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 just you know, we, we can't have people thinking like that because that's just going to that's going to propagate all sorts of negative stereotypes which will have bad effects of feminism as I, I i will be thinking in a sort of diffuse way as a barrister or an accountant or whatever and i won't think through all of the thousand and one ways that further down the food chain in the, in those parts of reality where people really do have to grapple with physical where, where people do manual work for example sex really does still matter and it's just obviously salient in ways which you you have to be you'd have to be blind or incredibly stupid not to notice or or just or living an incre- living such a rarefied existence that you get your food ubered in and um somebody somebody else does all of the hard work in your life and you just never really have to think about that stuff so really what's going on here is a class disparity and and it's a war it's a class inflected war within feminism which is being rolled out worldwide by by a subset of people who who enabled by digital technology and enabled by the the now global information economy are able to live their lives at some considerable distance from physical material reality um such such that their interests are very are very much more served by pretending that that bodies just don't matter um and this and and, and this this takes on a feminist coloration but in fact it extends much further and this is i mean this is not is not a subject i've explored so much in the book but there's a, a a more extensive, possibly the next book actually that I write about, an interest of mine in exploring some of the larger political ramifications of this 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 class war, which I see as emerging between the people who live who mostly live in in physical reality and the people whose lives operate at this global networked level in in the digital one. And I see this as a class war which extends a great a great distance beyond uh, gender ideology, which is really just the one one um, highly coloured and very prominent in aspect of that of that class war but I, but i see this as a class war with with ramifications that go all the way up and down the food chain and and spread well beyond well well beyond the developed world no i, I think you're uh hitting the nail on the head i, I just want to mention uh i i was renewing my one of my kids uh, u.s passports recently it was the first time i ever saw on the at uh, the u.s embassy the form it said male you could choose the, i could have i could choose the gender of my kid now it said male female or x uh, other and just recently in Mexico, the Mexican government, especially here in Jalisco, uh, they introduced for Mexicans now, I think in the Mexican passport, you can also choose your gender, put X on the passport. And it's funny because in, in Canada, I was reading the Can- Canadian government, I, I believe, was warning Canadian citizens uh, about putting X on your Can- Can- uh, Canadian passport because some other countries don't recognize that. And so you perhaps would not even be able to travel to certain countries with your X uh, gender. <laughs> um passport and um i think it's important what you discuss your experience as uh being a uh mother now i i could have related uh, a lot you know my wife now is a stay-at-home uh mom 
And, you know, people ask often, uh, you know, what does she do? And she's like, uh, she stays home. And as you mentioned in the book, they sometimes roll their eyes at the, at the social gathering or, or party. And I'm like, there's nothing wrong with that. And you, you talk about this in the book as well. Um, she's working, you know, stay at home moms work, uh, insanely, like, you know, kids, homeschooling, all sorts of stuff. Uh, sometimes, you know, in some cases it, it could even be, uh, more work than, you know, the, the, the independent female professional. And so, you know, any further thoughts, um, uh, on that right well ab- absolutely i mean I was, it, it's not as it's not as though my first class degree from oxford university evaporated when i stopped when i fell off the the, the working treadmill it's not as though all of all of those books i had to read and all of the all of the way all the, the thoughts i had on a daily basis stopped happening you know, just because i was i was not going and sitting in some cubicle shunting a, a mouse around and driving a spreadsheet i mean to, to be honest, I, I actually I found it tremendously liberating <laughs> giving up work because I was terrible at all of the all of the professional avenues I, I attempted up to the point where I fell off the edge of the working world. I sucked at all of them. I was I was pretty much unemployable by the time I became a stay at home mum. So I, I have a lot of sympathy for those for those women who 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 have jobs rather than careers, you know, of which there are a great many. Um, this is this is not something that the liber- the the story of you know empower professional empowerment in the workplace really has is has has a great deal of interest in. But the reality is that the vast majority of people of both sexes um, don't work because they find it gratifying or validating. They work because they have to because otherwise they they don't get to eat, right? Um, you know, most most jobs are not gratifying or fun, or most jobs are not something which anybody should ever ever seriously have to pretend to be passionate about. Most jobs are just boring, or or they're just okay or you know it's just something that you do and that's that's the reality for most people on the planet um and and this idea that it's it's by definition always more empowering to spend time away from your family doing one of those things is is true but for a very small a relatively small subset of the of the people with jobs on the planet people with with professional lives i mean i'm i mean i feel incredibly blessed now to have a to have a, a line of work I mean, I as a as a writer now, which I is pretty much the only thing that any, I've ever managed to do for more than two years without getting sacked for just being hopelessly incompetent and really just bad tempered and truculent with it. And just if you're if you're listening to this, Sally, please don't turn around and sack me tomorrow because this is the only thing I've ever I've ever been any good at. Um, but but the yeah, for, I I know what it's like not having that. And I and and when I when I had my daughter, I. I couldn't think of anything which I'd done up until that point um, that that I wanted to do enough to warrant um, going back to work for and, and going and leaving her twelve hours a day with somebody else. So just the the the, the the that choice seemed seemed absurd. And I get that for so for women who've who've you know they've studied and they've worked and they've qualified and they've done all the post grad stuff and they've got their qualifications. I get that you know for for those those professionally ambitious women. Who've done all of that and really who love their work, that, that this would be a much more difficult decision to make. Um, but but for me, and I suspect for you know, for every other woman who's done you know, a job of one sort or another, because it's just something which was it was okay and it seemed paid okay and just whatever. Um, you know, this this is a you know telling t- lumping those women in with the with the highly paid, ambitious, passionate. Um, professional women and assuming that the same policy is going to make sense for all of them is just it's nonsense and it's not just nonsense but it's 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 it, it replicates the mother-shaped blind spot at an immense scale in 
in a way which is harmful, deeply harmful, not just to children, but also to, to mothers themselves, because it it renders invisible an entire aspect of who we are. Um, the the vast majority of mothers want to be. I mean, there's a great there's a great social scientist who gets generally memory hold every time anyone mentions her. Catherine Hakim did a, did some studies about twenty years ago where she looked at what what women like what women will do, women who are mothers or what women would like to do in terms of work life balance around family and professional life, given the choice. Um, she argued that there's been plenty of plenty of history where women just don't really have a choice one way or another, and you know you either have to you have to work or um, you can't work. Um, but but given that we live in circumstances now where a great many women you know have a certain amount of agency and you know they can make a choice about what they want to do, what what do, what would women prefer? And she she established that it breaks down roughly roughly sixty percent um, would like well roughly twenty percent don't want to work at all. They what they want a mum. Roughly twenty percent just want to work all the time. Um, that sounds about right to me. You know, I, I know, yeah, that, that that sounds about right to me. And the rest would like some sort of a mixture of the two. Um, and I guess, yeah, you know, I'm I'm incredibly blessed to have found the sort of holy grail in that sense. Um, in that I get to I, I get to be around for my daughter before and after school. I get to do work that I love, and I and it's insanely flexible in the school holidays. Not everyone is is as fortunate as me. I think there's a huge amount more that could be done at a policy level. Um, and of course, that varies according to local situations. But there's a massive amount that could be done at policy level. Um, to to improve opportunities for for flexible working for all of, for that sixty percent, and there's also a huge amount that could there's a huge amount that could be done at a cultural level to 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 make more space for honouring the the desire to not be one of the twenty percent who wants to work work full time. If you if you understand what I'm saying, you know, rather rather than treating that as a matter of laziness or a lack of ambition, um, we we could just see it as a slightly different as a as a diverse set of priorities, a different set, a different but equally equally natural, normal, noble, and respectable set of priorities. And uh, yeah, I, I I sort of feel like this shouldn't be beyond the wit of man, but somehow it seems to be. Uh, yeah, it's, it's a source of endless frustration to me that people aren't able to see what's right in front of them in that way. Um, and and I, I get really angry when I hear stories about you know I hear the stories as I often do of, of women like your wife who 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 have that experience and I've never met a stay at home mum who's not had that experience of being treated as though they're just slightly dumb or underqualified or lazy or um, just in in some other way a bit of a loser for 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 making for for making the choice to prioritise the domestic domain and yeah I I find that I find that every bit as frustrating. It's as though we become legible to the extent we become participants in the marketplace, and in, and what's astonishing, really, is the is is how often it's the very same progressives who would call themselves anti-capitalists who are the ones who who can only see us to the extent that we're willing to 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 atomize ourselves in the marketplace and become participants and you know economic agents in that marketplace. And there's something that there's there's a deep cognitive dissonance at work there that I think a lot of them just don't really don't really see. Yeah, I think again, you nailed uh, that on the head. It's 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 uh, such hypocrisy to 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 react like that because you should value humans for who they are as as humans and their and their character. And I was just going to mention, not, not everyone can uh, afford to have the 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 wife uh, or mother stay um, at home. But like you said, I think much more, many more people than uh, we we realize could make that happen, um, as you just mentioned. And again, my wife has a graduate degree from the top university here in Mexico. By the way, it's the only university in all of Latin America that was in, invited to the World Economic Forum uh, 
Davos, and she was even given a job as a director, offered a job as a director or principal there, and which you know, which for Mexico was like great. And and you know, she's like, I, I don't need that. I like being mother at home, and she, she's you know, she's studying and doing other stuff, and so. Um, and it's just sad that people will react like that. Oh, you're staying at home? Uh, uh, okay. So uh, anyways, I did want to mention as well, reading your book, something that made me think when I was a young man growing up in the West in America, you know, I'm talking about teenager, early 20s, um, I was consuming a lot of the mainstream material. And I, I realized, because you talk about your book, all this transgender stuff, and they want to make women more manly and men more effeminate. And I realized, you know, I was looking at reading GQ, watching these movies, and I was becoming more effeminate as a man, as a young man, uh, you know, metrosexual and all this stuff. And I, I look now in embarrassment because my father's a manual laborer, blue collar, working class type of guy from, you know, coming from Croatia. And I would, as a young man, tell to his face and his colleagues who were making, you know, some of his colleagues were making a lot of money. I would say uh, I would poo poo that. You know, I would say blue collar manual work is, 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 I would say it's, it's junk and, you know, white collar thinking with your brain type of work is, is, is better. And I've started to unlearn that. You know, I, there's websites like Art of Manliness and, and others where I'm relearning how to be a man and, and go to those, uh, traditional perspectives and, and, you know, and any further, um, uh, thoughts on that because i think that's part of what you were talking about this cyber theocracy theocracy this meat uh lego gnosticism uh i mean that's a fascinating chapter and so you know any further thoughts on that or or, or any other thoughts um, actually yeah i mean this is the, the 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 interaction between um masculinity influences and the internet and really but the interaction between the internet and masculinity is something which i i find super interesting and very paradoxical um, in the sense that, um, well, to, to put it bluntly, I think social media cucked everybody. It, like, if, to, to expand on that a little bit, I think, you know, let's, I mean, if you, if you look at the, the, the work of the evolutionary, the psychologist Joyce Benenson, she studies, um, male and female intersexual competition and male and female intersexual dynamics, which is to say the, in, the dynamics within within groups of women and the dynamics within groups of men um she's she's written very ex extensively about this it's absolutely fascinating work fascinating research and she's she's argued that for adaptive evolved reasons men and women you know when when they interact with one another go about it differently and men men will groups of males and this is not just not just um, male humans but other other types of primate will tend to cooperate internally within a group um in order to compete with an out group so they'll they'll form a war band and fight against other war bands, to put it crudely, um, and that's just what you know. Or they'll, they'll form football teams and compete against other football teams. And that's that's a very typical male uh, male form of socialization. Um, it it re reinforces bonds within the in group, um, and, and harmony is ensured within the in group through through a, a distinctive set of strategies. And then they'll compete without groups. And women don't really work like that. Um, Again, for adaptive reasons to do with, you know, ensuring resources and being physically weaker and so on. Women will tend to in seek for more peaceful relationships in a much more broad and network way. Um, and will, and, and in as much as they, they have conflict within, within the group or with, an, with another, with, with another individual, they'll do it indirectly, but, but because they're just not, not as physically strong. So they'll, so, so, so they 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 won't, they won't initiate physical confrontations as, as much. And this is male, female humans and female. Um, other forms, other primates that in they'll, they'll they'll get they'll get the friends to gang up on another woman. They'll they'll they 
they'll orchestrate whispering campaigns they'll they'll use and and the ultimate sanction is less likely to be violence than it is social ostracism and that's how women work and again this is these are these are very sort of broad brush um sketch pictures of um the of, of typical you know very very crudely put male and female intersexual dynamics and what i think is so striking about the way social media works is that it basically forces absolutely everybody irrespective of their sex into the female pattern of intersexual dynamics and that includes um groups of men and and what's fascinating is that you get a lot of the, you get these groups of guys who are really very preoccupied with the question of masculinity and maleness and you know how to be a man these days and yet you see reproduced within those groups just by because they're all interacting on the internet rather than in real life um you see you 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 see them orchestrating whisp- whispering campaigns and ostracizing people who they dislike um and 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 every other, <laughs> you know and getting getting their friends to gang up on somebody that they don't like and and it's a, it's honestly it's the kind of dynamics you'd expect to see in a group of sixth form girls and and it's and it's fundamentally the technology which is forcing their social which is forcing social interactions into those forms and i mean if i be very respectfully you know to any to any man who's concerned about the effect that the modern world is having on his masculinity i would i would suggest unplugging and seeing your friends in real life it really is as simple as that you know if you want to be more manly spend less time on the internet you know <laughs> That is, I mean, I never thought about that, and that, that's that's true. So there, there's some tips for some of our uh, listeners. And um, the last part of your book, I think you have three chapters about, you know, what to do, taking back the movement from the fourth industrial revolution. And so, if you want to, you know, your final thoughts on, you know, in what healthy direction should society be going when it comes to all of this stuff, you know, men, women, tradition, the marketplace technology uh, and and feminism yeah this was the, this was a very difficult section to write because what is to be done is just always more difficult to write unless you're Lenin which I'm not um what what is to be done is always more difficult to do and the, I could have written a whole other book um with, with with my probably very radioactive thoughts about what how we should address all of these challenges at a policy level um but I, but but I, I decided not to go there because I wanted to keep to 50 55,000 words if, if at all possible and so I, I started from the other end of the telescope which is to say the personal and the domestic sphere um none of which is to say that you know these these things don't merit or or call for a policy response that's just not what I chose to address um in feminism against progress what I've suggested instead is that if we're going to if, if we're going to foment a backlash against the transhumanist era, we have to start with the first transhumanist technology, and that means we have if that the the, the, the central the, the the most important plank of that. Well, there, there are three, um, but the most the, the central plank of that is that women women must reject hormonal birth control. You know, we 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 must say no to the sexual industrial complex, um, and, the, and the if if the original the original moment at which at which we 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 gave our assent to having our bodies commodified, you know, with all of the negative downstream consequences that I've documented in the book that have come off the back of that, the proliferation of pornography and the the degradation of relations between men and women through internet dating and casual sex, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Not to mention the entire industrialization of our of our bodies and of, of big fertility and and so on. Then it has to start with saying no to the pill. And I've I've suggested some of the positive consequences, really not from a not from a religious conservative perspective, but from a pro-sex and pro-intimacy and pro-long-term commitment 
perspective that I, I see as, as as emerging pretty reliably from that. Now, this is obviously not something I advocate to somebody who has poor impulse control or low time preference. Um, but you know, <laughs> assuming assuming you're young and fertile and not and you're, you're not in that category, then I, I would urge you to to just to stay stay the hell away from the pill and encourage your friends to as well. It's not not only not only is it doing horrible things as Alex Jones suggested to frogs and fish. <laughs> but it's 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 polluting our sexual ecologies as well. So that's 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 step number one. Step number two, we need a new approach to marriage, um, which which take which removes it from the consumerist paradigm, the consumerist dead end. It's it's found its way into where it just becomes a vector for for, for self actualization um, that, that can be dissolved at any time. You know, if it fails to live up to that, and we need to to reorient marriage towards life lifelong solidarity. And I think that's particularly salient outside those elite circles where life is now obviously and measurably getting worse. Um, it is, it is, it's my one, one of my framing hypotheses for the book is that we're some distance now past peak progress, and I don't see the poly crisis coming to an end anytime soon. If I see it likely escalating under those circumstances, it's it's self evidently in women's interests to have a have strong, supportive, stable social relationships, and that includes, you know, above all else, really, a strong, supportive, stable relationship with a man whom they love and trust and who's 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 going to be there to to have their back and particularly if you want to have kids you'd be insane not to be making that a priority and um, so so the, the the feminist case for a post-romantic approach to marriage as the the as a vehicle for lifelong solidarity rather than personal gratification and I've, I've i've set out to make a to make the case for that and to give some examples of people whom i know who are already building lives on that basis and i've i've heard, I've, I've told i've heard some really beautiful stories on that front and actually since i put since the book was published i've heard many more from young young men and women who are who who are taking that approach and who found it who found it just just endlessly enriching and a, a real gift um and thirdly um i want i wanted to make the case for for letting men be which is to say for for extending the logic of defending single sex spaces beyond the gender critical feminist one which which seeks to protect a few limited exceptions to coed to universal coedness in for in for, for for the sake of women's privacy and dignity for example in sports and prisons um and 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 extending that logic a little bit further back into in into the rest of our, our social lives, um, and I've, I've I've argued that that in fact the the feminist demand to make all of society co-ed has had un, undercounted negative ramifications, particularly for working class men, and that in fact if we want if we want to make the case for for post romantic marriage, you know, with the, we we need to make space for good men to form one another. Because it's just self-evidently the case. It's obvious to me, anyway, that women that women don't form good men. Good men form one another. And if if we want if we want there to be any chance at all of that happening, then then we have to step back and let it happen. And that means letting men have some of their spaces back where they can talk, do whatever it is. That, I have no idea what men do when I'm when women are not around. But I, I don't care. But <laughs> but but I I feel like that has to happen. Otherwise otherwise that beneficial mentorship never has a chance to develop and then all you have left is online masculinity influencers who bicker like sixth or sixth form schoolgirls, or, or or andrew tate and man that's just not that's not that's not it that ain't it um you know real healthy male mentorship happens offline in the real world between mutually trusted um peers or it, within within the healthy kind of hierarchy and i think we have the, the, the there is a robust feminist case for for making space for that to happen yeah, and like you said, men 
get offline. I know you're listening now uh, online, but when you finish, go go hang out with guys. And that's what I do. I mean, I, I hang out here with guys just, you know, in person and we're, we're, we're missing that. And um, we've covered a lot. Again, we've just scratched the surface of your uh, book. There's a lot of stuff you explore in depth there. And again, I'm, I, I love the book a bit outside my depth, but I need to challenge myself and, and bring new topics to listeners. But, you know, it very much comes together with a lot of what I've been covering transhumanism, this push, you know, this globalist push for control of the planet and, technocracy and, and and so forth and i know you're you're, you're on twitter you've got your substack reactionaryfeminist.substack.com where are the best places um to find you and and uh to get the book so the the book is available from regnery at the end of the month 25th of april um in the, the u.s publication date um i am i'm on twitter at moving circles uh, my substack is reactionary feminist um and my weekly column at unheard.com um, I, I publish two pieces a week there, one long, one short, and you can find a great, a great, a great deal of my work. Um, some of it is about women. Some of it also is about, about techno, techno, technocracy and transhumanism and all of these other juicy subjects, which you get into on this podcast. So check it out. Very, uh, big fan of, uh, unheard. And so, yeah, keep, keep up the great work. I'm sure you'll, you're, you don't have to worry about your, uh, writing gig. You, I, I, we look forward to future books uh, from you as well. So thank you for being on Geopolitics and Empire. Thank you so much. I hope you enjoyed this Geopolitics and Empire podcast. The website is geopoliticsandempire.com, and I encourage you to sign up for the free email list that goes out with each podcast and every weekend with a collection of news headlines. The newsletter and website are our last lines of defense. We're being censored and deplatformed. It's nearly impossible to find Geopolitics and Empire on the Google search engine. We've been blacklisted. YouTube frequently takes down our videos with strikes, Facebook restricts our page, Reddit and Twitter take down posts, and after the Associated Press mentioned geopolitics and empire in a 2021 article co-written with NATO, our Patreon account was terminated. Vimeo also terminated our pro account. The best free way to help geopolitics and empire is to leave a review on Apple Podcasts or elsewhere and subscribe to all of our media channels. You can find the video broadcast now on five platforms, Odyssey, Rockfin, Rumble, BitChute, and Brighteon. You can find the audio broadcast on the podcast ecosystem, SoundCloud, Apple, Spotify, and so on. My current favorite social media channels are Twitter and Telegram, but you can also find us on Gab, MeWe, Minds, Float, VK, Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Finally, Geopolitics and Empire is in dire need of funding to continue. You can leave a donation, purchase a consultation with the host, or become a member to receive additional benefits. We also produce a weekly broadcast called Dissident Thinker for members and Rockfin subscribers only. We will continue to fight the good fight come hell or high water. Thank you for listening.